Father, we're here this morning very aware that this song, these songs are are prayers. They're not a statement necessarily of our reality every moment of every day. But they represent the cry of our heart. You've changed our hearts. You've changed our longings. So this morning I pray that through the preaching of your word, through the community of your people gathered through the singing of songs in worship and adoration of you, that you would continue to mold our hearts and shape us into people who long for your kingdom, who long to have you as our greatest treasure, who dream of living and being with you and for you. So, Father, let your Holy Spirit come and encourage us and strengthen us and build us up as your people this morning, I pray. Amen. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. It can be found starting on page 812 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. My name is Mike Stanzik. I'm doing a pastoral residency here at Trinity Community Church. A little under the weather today, so excuse my voice. It will almost inevitably wear out by the end. Um, today we uh, continue on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're talking about criticizing others, specifically within the church, but I think it applies much, much more broadly <clears throat> to people who are not believers, and even into the way we talk about leaders, the way we talk about political groups. I think it changes our public discourse. But it's a hard topic because those of us who are especially judgmental and especially critical people are usually the last ones to know because we're too, way too busy thinking and, and looking at everyone around us, right? And so my, my prayer for this morning is for, for open, openness, that, that those of us who are the sorts of people this passage is, is written to, that we would be open to hear what the Lord has, has said. Let's open in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would give us courage to hear and understand your word this morning, that your spirit would make it pointed, clear to us, that you would bring conviction and bring obedience. We love you, Lord. Amen. So 
there's a writer named Dave Eggers. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist, novelist, memoirist. He did a, uh, an interview for the Harvard Advocate. And at one point, he was asked, are you selling out? He had done a couple fluff pieces for some other magazines, some of which were even under a, a different name, just so he could basically reap the funds. And his response was really interesting. He, he responded by criticizing his critics. They asked him, are you selling out? And instead, the question turns into this pot shot at critics. And he says, don't be critics, you people. I beg you. I was a critic. I wish I could take it all back because it came from a really smelly and ignorant place in me and spoke with a voice that was all rage and envy. Do not dismiss a book until you have written one. Do not dismiss a movie until you have made one. Do not dismiss a person until you've met them. Eggers' quote inevitably sparked up a bunch of responses from critics, the best of which actually came about 10 years later from Dwight Garner in the New York Times, where he essentially points out that what Eggers is describing is the end of critical thinking. So maybe it's not exactly the right thing to do when it comes to art criticism, but I think Eggers is onto something when it comes to most criticism. Because the thing is, I think that just even just looking at my own life, most of my criticism of other people comes from a really ugly place. I think we criticize other people because we feel like we are better than they are. Or maybe it's because we want to feel better than they are. And criticism helps us feel that. Criticism, most of the time, is a mechanism for feeling superior. Something we do to judge. Something we do to divert attention off of ourselves and our faults and onto somebody else and their faults. Maybe it's something we do because we love being right more than we love people. Sometimes criticism is necessary, but if we take Jesus seriously today, we'll come to recognize most of it for what it is. Jesus' disciples recognize most criticism for what it is. I just want to jump right in. Firstly, disciples will recognize that most criticism is dangerously judgmental. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So judge is a super loaded term in our culture. So you sort of have one group of people who equate being judgmental with telling me I'm wrong, right? So in this case, someone is judgmental if they point out, like, hey, what you're doing is probably morally bad. Well, you can't say that. That's judgmental. So, like, the, the sort of tolerant, intolerance and, and judgmentalism, they sort of become the same thing in that perspective. I see that sort of language coming most often from folks who are, who are left of the aisle. But then I, I see something else happening where there's sort of this reaction where those who typically are on the right side of the aisle sort of respond by saying, I'm not judgmental. I'm morally discerning. It's not wrong to say that something is wrong. And I think that's actually true. I think it's not wrong to say that something's wrong. The problem is is that oftentimes those very same people then use that as sort of a hall pass 
to be really judgmental. They are actually judgmental, self-righteous people. And instead, they're just claiming immunity on the grounds like, hey, I'm calling it like I see it. I'm not judgmental. I'm bold. Right? I'm not a critical person. I'm just thinking critically. All these things can, can just as easily couch actual judgmentalism. And so the result is that conversation has broken down. I think we've, we've all lost sort of this, this mutual empathy for each other's perspectives to the point that we actually can make no headway in the conversation. So what does judge mean? We have to recalibrate. What does Jesus mean by the word judge? I think at the end of the day, we judge people when we decide their worth. We judge people when we decide their worth. We look at what they do, or more often, to our shame, what they're wearing, how they talk, how they vote, where they spend their time, who they hang out with. We look at any one of those things, and we decide that on that ground, I'm better than them. We look at what they do, and we decide their worth. But that's not the only problem with judging, is it? So, so Fritz Lang, he was a German filmmaker from like the 30s and 40s. He's very, very famous for a movie called M. It was a, a huge deal in cinema history because it was the first time where you had a, a character heard before he was seen, right? So you have Peter Lorre, you hear his footsteps before he actually walks on, and minds were blown. This was new technology in the film world. So M, historically, is a really interesting movie, but more than that, it's just a downright awesome movie. So what you have is Peter Lorre, before immigrating to the United States, playing Hans Beckert, who is a serial killer in Berlin, and he's a serial killer of a particularly heinous sort. And so as he's going on this killing spree, he's, he's extremely elusive. Nobody can find him. The, the police are more and more putting pressure on sort of the community of petty criminals in Berlin. And so the story that Lang tells is fascinating because what happens next is as all this pressure, as there's this giant crackdown on all criminals in Berlin, all the petty criminals get together and they say, Hans Beckert is really, really bad for us. We need to find him. And so they devise this elaborate plan to find Beckert, and they do find him, and they take him down into this like abandoned underground warehouse. And the, it's, the, it's fascinating. So Lang has them put Beckert on trial. So you have this massive crowd of like 50, 60 criminals who all put this serial killer on trial. They, they have a lawyer for him, a drunkard. So the drunkard defends him to the best of his ability, and then there's this one of the greatest monologues in film history, Peter Lorre doing his own plea as Hans Becker. It's just awesome, devastating. And so they hear his plea. They're, they're pitiless. They, they sentence him to execution, and then they're going to lynch him. So the, the whole crowd starts to, to get into this giant frenzy, and so Lang has this shot where you're looking at this giant crowd of like 50, 60 criminals, they all rise from their seats and rush Lori. So they're rushing toward the camera and then they all stop. They're all frozen in place 
looking off to the side of the camera, and all at once, they put their hands up. And it's revealed that as they were trying Beckert, the police have stormed into the warehouse. And they arrest all of them, including Beckert. See, the problem with judging isn't just how we evaluate other people. It's how we evaluate ourselves. When those criminals in M put Beckert on trial, they're confident, they're self-righteous, they feel good about themselves, because none of them are guilty of the thing Beckert is guilty of. But as soon as the standards are flipped, as soon as they aren't just comparing Beckert to themselves, but now they're comparing themselves to another standard, all their hands are in the air. I think that's why Jesus can say that judging others is downright dangerous. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we judge, we're looking at somebody, we're looking at something they do, and we're evaluating their worth. And the very same moment we're evaluating ours, we're saying, based on what I do, I'm better than them. We judge them and justify ourselves, and we do it both on the grounds of work. And Jesus is turning to us and saying, do you really want to be judged by your works? Because I will do it. Because here's the thing. We can get together and we can feel really righteous, criticizing other people's faults when our own behavior is the standard. But when we're held to God's standard, there's no one in this room with their hands down. Judging others isn't this innocent parlor room sin. It may actually indicate a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. At one point, Jesus tells a story about a servant who owes an enormous sum of money to his master. And the master forgives his debt. And from there, the servant leaves and goes out and encounters a friend of his who owes him like a, just a pittance, just a small amount of money, and he bears down the consequences on that person. And the master finds out. And essentially says it's clear that you didn't understand the debt that you were forgiven because you did not forgive your brother. I think we're in danger of the same thing when it comes to most criticism. It's dangerous judgmentalism. Because the reality is that in Christ, God has not judged us by our works. He has judged us by Jesus' works. He has forgiven and cleansed us of a great debt. So why would we want to rework the calculus? Those who have been forgiven much cannot afford to return judgmentalism. It's dangerous. We must live a a cross-shaped life of loving grace and mercy to those around us because we know that we're not superior. Jesus unpacks this even more in the next point. So not only will disciples recognize that most criticism is dangerously judgmental, it's also blindly hypocritical. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? 
Hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here Jesus deploys one of his more hilarious illustrations. Like, you can almost picture this as just a freak logging accident where you have both the guys doing the thing with the tree, and then suddenly it falls too soon and just sprays, like, sawdust and branches everywhere. And so you have one guy who's kind of like, man, there's a lot of sawdust in my eye. And his buddy comes up and he hears him behind him. Oh, here, let me help you with that. And turns around and the dude's eye is impaled by a branch. Just an utterly total like, lack of self-awareness. Right? That's what Jesus is describing here. Somebody who is just completely unaware that they are not presently capable of helping out with the speck. Right? Their face is impaled by a plank. So it's this incredibly effective image. Like, not only is most criticism dangerously judgmental, not only is most criticism just a way of determining someone's value by their works, it's also blindly hypocritical. Just like the criminals in M, we apply a different standard to others than we do to ourselves. It's a way of lying. The way of acting as though we're passionate for God's moral standards and all the while picking and choosing which of those standards we can most conveniently be passionate about. We so often criticize because we are willfully ignorant of the fact that we're just as guilty, if not more so, than everyone around us. And again, it's a way of feeling superior. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus records this parable, right? He tells this this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee prays this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, and not the other. The biggest problem with the Pharisee is that he saw only the faults of others and none of his own. And as a result, he, he does not have it in him to be repentant. Jesus, or Luke says that Jesus told this story to those who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Trusting in themselves that they were righteous. He told that story to folks who couldn't think of anything they'd done wrong. He told those sto- that story to folks who say, I'll admit when I'm wrong when I actually am. To folks who only admit they're wrong if they're the ones who realize they were wrong but get a little angry when someone else points it out. He told those stories to folks who are followed by conflict, but think the reason is still all the people around them and they're not noticing the common denominator. When we do that, we're looking for specks and forgetting logs. It's interesting, Jesus literally says that without addressing the log in our own eyes, so like, Without fostering this ongoing posture of repentance, we literally cannot find the speck in someone else. Do you see that? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So like this doesn't mean so this means that Jesus is not a hundred percent against all kinds of criticism. He's not 100% against picking out the speck. 
But it's only after removing the log that we have the ability to look for specks. In other words, only repentant people see clearly enough to help people repent. Only repentant people see clearly enough to help people repent. That could be a tongue twister, by the way. Feel free to use that. When we are repentant people, when each of us are doing the hard work of extracting logs from our eye sockets, at that moment, I think criticism changes for us. Because we're, we're seeing our brokenness as something that Jesus has atoned for in the cross. As something, like, the cross was something I needed and need. Jesus is something I need daily. And if I am in touch with that process of staring unflinchingly into the face of my own weakness and inadequacy and sin, if I know the pain of repentance, then I will not criticize somebody in a way to tear them down. It will change the way I criticize. What would our church be like if we obeyed this? I think it would be like an all-patient staff. So imagine a hospital where from the receptionist to the nurses to the techs to the doctors to the surgeons, everybody on that staff has at one point been a patient at that same hospital. That, that the surgeon who is working on you has known the pain and discomfort of recovery. That everyone who walks in your room has known the monotony of whiling away the hours on a hospital bed. Every single one of them has found healing at that same place and are now walking you through the process of finding healing there as well. When that sort of doctor prescribes, when that sort of Christian criticizes, it's with a whole different kind of attitude. All of us who have trusted in Jesus have turned to the same source for healing. And each of us become a part of the church to participate in that same work that we experienced in Christ. And so when we realize that, we we find this reservoir of empathy and love to patiently bide our time with people, to, to guide another person through the process of repentance and change to not just because we love being right and not just because we love being the advice giver, but because we love that person and know that Jesus saves. Jesus is calling the church to be an all-patient staff. In order to do that, we have to recognize that most criticism is blindly hypocritical. Lastly, most criticism is tragically fruitless. So verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them them underfoot and turn to attack you. So this is another one of those illustrations that isn't immediately easy to get. So I'll take a crack at it, and you can let me know know what you think. Um, Jesus is recognizing here that there will be times where criticism will be truthful, where you could rightly identify a wrong behavior in another person. There's a reason to criticize. 
but it's also clear to any reasonable observer that that person is not ready to hear it. And that to, to criticize them at that moment would be to create conflict and to create division. So Jesus is, in other words, asking, what's the point? What would be the point of criticizing that person? It would be like taking something that is valuable and throwing it to something that is not capable of recognizing its value at this time. So why do we still criticize? I mean, am I the only one that has criticized another person knowing that it's only going to stir up conflict? I've taken a little pot shot, not so that it creates healing, but just so I can be right. In high school, one of my teachers told this story. I didn't think much of it at the time, but now I realize it was horrifying. So in the story, she, she talked about going on a missions trip, and she had some students with her. And one of the students was evan- like doing street evangelism, talking to a guy on the street, and it's becoming increasingly clear that this dude is just not into it right now, and he's becoming kind of a little bit more hostile, like, I'd like to end this conversation. And the, the student did something that my teacher was actually in full approval of, which is why I now realize the horror of the story. So the student, as she's, as she's realizing this dude's becoming more and more, more hostile, she finally says, fine, Jesus told me not to throw my pearls to pigs anyway, and she storms off. Like, very, very seldomly do you have an opportunity to disobey one of Jesus' commandments by quoting the commandment. Like, that does not happen very often, but... Like, that, it takes a, a particular kind of ingenuity. In some ways, i got to take my hat off to her. But, like, so I think we all see the ridiculousness of, of that. And yet, sometimes we just can't help ourselves. Or maybe we want to believe we can't help ourselves. Why do we need, why do we feel the need to say something when a person isn't ready? I think a lot of it has to do with our own Pride. Sometimes we're saying something so that when the consequences come down on them later, we can say, I told you so. Sometimes, I notice this in myself, there's a person in my life who presently is, struggles with some stuff that I struggled with years before. And obviously, there's still that like embryo of that past sin in myself, just easily angered, easily offended. And I have found myself at times just prodding her to get her to respond, to get her to do the things I used to do. And it was mind-boggling to me why I was doing this. And I think in some way I was trying to punish or point out or judge in her the things that I didn't like about myself. But I really wasn't interested in healing. I wasn't interested in her overcoming that If I was, I'd probably spend more time affirming her in other areas. I'd probably just spend more time hanging out with her intentionally. I'd probably build up relational capital before I acted like I was ready to make a withdrawal.
evangelicals get a lot of flack in the media. And a whole lot of that is undeserved. A whole lot. A whole lot of it has to do with our position on moral issues that are easy to disagree with. Some of that flack is deserved. Some of that flack was because evangelicals were more concerned about speaking into culture than they were about loving it. Some of that flack is not because evangelicals loved morals too much. It's because they loved people too little. I think Jesus is calling us to a different kind of discourse. Now here's the thing, I don't think that what Jesus is calling us to in this verse is just distancing ourselves from people who are stubborn. Like you'd be really, really lonely if you did that. I think given everything that comes before in this passage, all the, the love and the repentance and the grace, I think when we're withholding pearls, right, it's not that we're withholding our friendship. I think Jesus is calling us to a very uncomfortable, very beautiful endurance with the people in our lives and in our church. To love them enough to wait with them and to pray for them, to encourage them, to serve with them. That's not to say that there aren't times to cut something off. Or to say what needs to be said, even if they're not prepared to hear it. Instead, I think this verse about throwing pearls to pigs is a call to discernment and to love. Jesus is calling us to foster relationships with even those who are not ready to change in hopes that one day they would. And again, sometimes you have to part ways, but not before traveling a long time down the road together. Giving criticism before then will be tragically fruitless. So disciples recognize most criticism for what it is. It's dangerously judgmental, blindly hypocritical, tragically fruitless. And most of you will will have noticed that this whole time I've been talking about most criticism. Sometimes we do have to say something, but what does that look like? So often we talk about criticism as making someone else's problem your problem. That's not really it. Most criticism is making somebody else's problem your pleasure. It's finding a way to make yourself feel superior because they have a problem. But if we really made each other's problems our problem, something would change. Where most criticism is dangerously judgmental, Christian criticism is lovingly gracious. Realizing that each person has worth because of their just basic humanity and because God has loved us by grace in Christ. Where most criticism is blindly hypocritical, Christian criticism is humbly knowledgeable. Knowing what it is to repent, to feel the sting of facing our sins, and then receiving the forgiveness of Jesus in his cross. We who are forgiven must forgive much. Only repentant people can help people repent. And most criticism is tragically fruitless, but Christian criticism is patiently discerning, praying and waiting for an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to expunge the weight of sin and the harm of sin from our brother or sister's heart. 
I'll close with this image. We, I open by talking about eggers and, and critics. If you were a critic and you were seeing a play, you would sit comfortably in the seats and you would critique that play, right? And you would do it with a cold distance. In fact, your career has been built by your ability to review plays, by your ability to review the worth of something. Let's say there's an especially bad actor in this play that you're reviewing. You will not feel any qualms about ripping that dude to shreds. And in fact, your readership may love it. It's no skin off your nose if it's bad. So your criticism reflects your investment in that performance. I'm not performing. In fact, I will be made better, made superior, if I critique that dude harshly. But it'd be far, far different if you were a fellow actor in that same play. You wouldn't take any pleasure from cutting that actor down. You wouldn't nitpick, you wouldn't discourage. Because your destiny has been wrapped up in his. Because the well-being of that play is your well-being. Because there's a weak link in the chain, right? The chain's only as strong as that link. And so you would seek the best for that actor. Because you would be so close to their experience that their failings would become your own and therefore their victories would become your victories. We are all in this together. We are all on equal footing in our sin. All on equal footing in grace. Your well-being is mine. Your joy is mine. Your pain is my pain. Your problem is my problem. Jesus is calling us to something so more adventuresome than tolerance. And so much more courageous than just moral discernment. He's calling us to love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have seen the love of God in your cross. So Lord, I I pray that it would sink in that we have been saved by grace, all of us guilty, and yet that grace has been offered to all of us on the same grounds, your goodness. So we thank you for your grace, Lord. We, We praise you, Jesus, as our Savior and our God. We pray that you would lead us from judgment and into redemptive compassion.